morning to study Apostle Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. It is Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. Therefore, recording the scriptures, it is Paul's prayer for all believers. And therefore, it is the prayer of your elders and pastors for Cornerstone Bible Church. So uh, let's stand together. I know you've been sitting for a while. Let's stand together. Open your Bibles to Ephesians 3, uh, 14 through 21. And this is the word of God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. So Paul does this in almost all of his letters. He begins his time by teaching on the the cross of Christ, by by presenting to the readers um, just a deep theology of the person and work of Christ. And so same thing here in Ephesians. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 is all about um, who Christ is and what Christ has done. He had shared... Uh, to the readers and to the church at Ephesus in verse 3, uh, through Christ, God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verses 4 through 7 in chapter four, chapter 1, um, he explained how God predestined us to adoption, um, to the praise of his glorious grace, that he has adopted us forever, for eternity, and we are now his sons, and we call him our father, according to his grace, so that people and angels for all history might praise the grace of God. In verse 8, Paul explains how he has lavished on believers all wisdom and insight through his Son, revealing even the mystery of God's redemptive will. In chapter 2, here is a uh, uh, martyology, theology of sin. He teaches us how we were dead in our trespasses, how we are by nature, verse 3, children of God's wrath. Chapter 2, verse 4, But God, who was rich in mercy because of his great love toward us, he made us alive in him. And then 8, 9, and 10, we all know these verses, do we not? How we've been saved through faith, by grace through faith, and not because of our works, lest any man should boast. That God desires boasting of man to be excluded, that all praise and honor might go to him alone. And that we are his workmanship, created by Jesus Christ to do good works. And then he concludes by saying how we are united in Christ, Jews and Gentiles, those who are far off, he brought near. And he reconciled us into one living, vibrant community called the New Testament Church, where Jews and Gentiles on equal footing have access to to God. We are members of one household, 
We are members of one family. Chapters 1, one, three, one 2, and 3 present to, presents to us a high view of God and our salvation. And then chapters 4 through 6, Paul moves on to the Christian life. In view of God's love and mercy, in view of what he has done and finished on the cross, he teaches believers how we are to live, how we are to conduct ourselves as Christians, as followers of Christ. Now, there is a bridge in between theology and the Christian life. There is, right in the middle of the book, Paul inputs here his prayer for Christians. By its placement here, he's telling us that truth cannot be fulfilled and obeyed apart from God's help through the Holy Spirit. And we receive this help by way of prayer. What activates theology, what sets truth on fire is, uh, is prayer through which the Holy Spirit empowers us to fulfill its truths. And chapters 4 through 6 is what it looks like. I would liken it as an ignition, as a spark. Theology is the wood. Christian life, we're the sacrifice. But without fire, there is no sacrifice that is offered. For there to be fire, for the sacrifice to be burned up, as a fragrant aroma pleasing to God, for you and I to please God, there must be prayer. Because we are not able to understand these truths. And of course we are not able to apply these truths to our lives apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. So right in the middle, Paul pauses. Paul puts the brakes on and then he prays for the church, prays for Christians. This is why we must pray. This is why I must pray. And this is why you must pray. If your Christian life is marked by powerlessness, if there is a lack of vibrancy, an intimacy, a delight, a joy, a sweetness in your Christian life, you have to wonder, you have to question, are you on your knees praying? Are you interceding before God? Are you calling upon His name? Or is your Christian life merely an intellectual exercise on studying truth and legalistic efforts based on self-will to apply it on your own strength? If that is the case, then you will note a lack of a vitality, a delight, a sweetness, power in your Christian life. Paul, by way of prayer here, reminds us that sanctification, holiness, evangelism, missions, just like salvation, is God's sovereign work. And because it is God's work, we must pray that He might do the work and we might receive. We are utterly dependent upon Him. And this is just Christian cliché. If we say, oh, we are weak, we don't have strength, we need Christ, we need the Holy Spirit, and we're dependent upon Him, we say all these things, but we do not pray. We're not praying without ceasing. 
we're not before God is thrown and calling upon Him, then these are just empty words. It's just Christian lingo. We're just conforming externally to the church. We're not being transformed by the Word of God. We're not really living out what God intends for us. If it's just lip service without actually praying to God. This is the place of prayer in our lives. All the instructions in the world, all the sermons, all the theology books, all the resources that we have at our disposal are all in vain and for naught without prayer. This is why even Jesus himself, the master teacher, after he taught his disciples in John 14 through 16 in the upper room, he, he stopped and then he prayed for them. Even the master teacher understood that without prayer, words have no power. After teaching his disciples, he prayed for them and asked God himself, to keep them in, in His name and to sanctify them by the truth through the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we need to pray. Therefore, we need to understand this prayer. Therefore, the elders and pastors must pray this for ourselves and you must pray for us according to, to Ephesians 3, 14, 3, 21. And likewise, continually, we must be praying for you and you must be praying for yourself and you must be praying for one another. Verse 14, we find our dear friend, the Apostle Paul, praying, and he is on his knees. I was surprised to find that the common posture for prayer in the Old and New Testament is praying through, by standing up. And you see this throughout the Gospels, men and women praying, standing up. That was the normal way to pray. And this continues in the Eastern tradition. If you go to Russia or Kazakhstan, they consider it disrespectful to be praying sitting down. Right? They consider it a rude to be praying to God when you're sitting down. They all stand when you're praying. Now, bowing down was a posture of, 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 of a heart that is devoted to their prayer. It was a posture of humility, a posture of intense prayer, pouring out one's heart because there was a great need that has occurred in that person's life or the, or for the person that they're praying for. So Paul, by his posture, is indicating something great, something significant has happened, and thus he is on his knees praying. So what happened, Paul? Why are you on your knees? Is there a famine? Is there a war? Is there a disease among the Christians at Ephesus? Is there worse persecution? Are Christians dying for the faith? What is occurring that pressed Paul to, to go away from his normal posture of prayer and to be on his knees before the Father? We find that Paul is on his knees because he's praying for the hearts of believers. He's praying for their inner man, their spiritual needs. He's praying for their hearts and their faith. That is what has driven him to his knees. So Paul is telling them, your financial situation is not important. Your health is secondary. Right? The condition of your family persecutions, whether you're being threatened with death, confiscation of property, those are all secondary prayer requests compared to the need of our faith, our soul, our inner man, our hearts. That is the utmost important need for prayer. And he's teaching us what we ought to be praying for. 
our utmost need is to pray for the inner man. Jonathan Edwards in his sermon in November 1740, praying for the Spirit according to Luke 11.13, notices how believers are so prone without even um, any kind of persuasion through preaching to pray for their health, pray for their business, pray for their finances, pray for their outward needs, at the same time completely ignore and neglect their spiritual needs. They are quick to call upon God for their worldly needs. And they're far too slow, negligent to go to God for their true needs of the inner man. And there are two sides to all each of us. Right? There is the outer man and the inner man. And the sad truth is that most of us, not all of us, we are um, obsessed, preoccupied with our outer man. Right? And that's reflected upon how much time we spend how anxious we get, right? how much devotion we put towards our clothes and our hairstyle, length, color, our makeup, any blemishes on our skin, right? our fittedness of our clothes, the style of our clothes, the color of our clothes, our shopping, shoes, going on diets, looking at ourselves in the mirror. We are preoccupied about the external man. And at the same time, we are negligent of the true man. The inner man is a true man. The outward man, it's um, you know, it's just fading. It's temporal. It's 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 decaying. And just look at your photo albums, right? Just look at Facebook the, and click on that photo section and browse through the years, and you'll see the outer man is always changing, and it's falling apart, right? It's not getting better. It's getting worse. That's the, the fleeting, uh, like the flowers of the field, a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. The true man is the man that God sees. First Samuel 16, 7. God does not consider the outward appearance. God, the Lord, looks at the heart. That is a true man that we are to be concerned about. If we can only record our prayers for a month, and I think it'd be a sobering... Uh, event, if you were to listen to that recording in one sitting, and I think for many of us, we'd be shocked uh, to how much of our prayer is fleshly, how much of our prayer is uh, reflective of love of this world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. It would reveal the idols of our hearts, um, what we pray for, how often we pray for these things, and how passionate we are in our prayers for these things would reveal what we truly treasure in our hearts, what we truly believe in, what we truly value, what truly forms our identity. Praying for our family, praying for our children, praying for our work, praying for our income, praying for our physical needs, praying for health. First and foremost, rather than praying, for our true spiritual needs of the heart. For Paul, he did pray for physical needs. The Lord's Prayer models that, teaches that. 
give us our daily bread. But for Paul, these were in its rightful place. They were secondary. What was primary, what was important, was the spiritual need of believers. So he bows his knees, praying for their spiritual needs. And you will notice he prays passionately, intensely. I mean, he prays without ceasing. Every time he remembers them, he goes and he prays for them. And you will notice he prays for what they already possess. It's, it's kind of weird. It's, it doesn't make sense. He prays for what they already have. It doesn't make sense. It's like somebody praying for me that I'd be married. I mean, what are you talking about? I'm already married. God, please grant James five kids. Don't pray that. I already have five kids. Right? Are you praying for five more kids? Are you, how dare you? Right? <laughs> Right? You know, we don't do that. We don't pray for what you already have. We pray for what we don't have. But here Paul is praying for what they already possess. He's praying in verse 17 that Christ may dwell in their hearts. But he's praying for believers. All believers have Christ dwelling within them. He's praying that they would know the love of Christ. They're Christians. Of course they know love of Christ. That is the first mark of a true Christian. And then he prays they'll be filled with God. He just said in Ephesians 1.23, how they have the fullness of God within them, among them. Why is he praying for what they already have? Because this is the ordinary situation for all believers. We all possess every spiritual blessing. But the reality for every Christian is, it does not affect us. It does not inform us. It does not, it's not a reality for us. It's, it's mostly just intellectual understanding and knowledge. We don't allow it. We don't naturally affect us in our daily living. He is not praying that they would have it. He's praying that these truths would have them. That God would possess them, not they would possess these truths, that these truths would grip their hearts. It would affect them. It would transform them. It would inspire them. It would melt their hearts. It would cause them to be transformed inside and out and radically alter how they live. It would be heaven down, not earth up. He's praying that they would experience it. He would pray, he's praying that they would believe it and know it and experience it. So Edwards talks about um, the difference between uh, uh, an intellectual knowledge and a heart knowledge. Where intellectual knowledge is just purely like knowledge and study and t- intelligence and brain work. But heart is experiential. It's sensual. It's intimate. It's tasting, the, knowing the beauty, knowing seeing the, the, the beauty of something and having our hearts warmed by it. And he illustrates it by honey. That we all know honey is sweet intellectually, but it's wholly different if you were to take a spoonful of that honey and you taste it and you savor it and you digest it, then you know the sweetness of that honey. Most Christians just know that Christ is sweet, Christ is here, Christ is true, that he loves us. 
But the experience that Paul is praying for, an experience that I'm praying for myself, and I'm praying for all of you, I hope you're praying for yourself, is that every day would have a growing experience of the sweetness of Christ. And our experience would be, there is a 50-gallon barrel of honey, right, that is with us wherever we go. And we are tasting it all the time. And with every taste, it gets sweeter. Somehow this barrel is constructed where every time, with every spoonful, the sweet, honey gets sweeter and sweeter to an infinite level. And that is the Christian life that Paul is praying for. And he's praying for us. This is... Um, the ordinary experience of Christians. This is a progressive. This is something that happens with every doctrinal truth. We, we discovered the faithfulness of God. That's a truth. That's a fact that we know. But hopefully, through living the Christian life and through seeing your own sinfulness and through studying the gospel, the Bible, and understanding the cross you discover every day how faithful He is. And you know more of His faithfulness today than you did yesterday, than two months ago, than six months ago, than six years ago. And you would say, man, six years ago, I had no idea of the faithfulness of God. I knew it as a truth. But now sitting here after all of my trials, disappointments, my sorrows, my griefs, my sins, I know how how much, how great God's faithfulness is. It's sweeter now than when I first believed. And that's not just for God's faithfulness. It's every true doctrine of the scriptures. Whether it's His kindness, His mercy, His steadfastness, His patience, His sovereignty, His holiness. Every day we discover how much more, how much greater, how much more delightful, sweeter it is than before. And that is a taste of what we'll experience in heaven. Right? In heaven, we will stand before God and give praise to God for eternity. And every day will be a greater revelation of our former sinfulness and how the greatness of God's infinite grace. And every day, there'll be sweeter and sweeter praising of God. Greater greater understanding of the depth of His love. On to eternity. This is why Paul prays for what Christians already have. And right now, all of us, myself included, we don't understand, we don't know these basic truths. I know I will know them in a greater measure tomorrow, but right now, that is why the experience we want to have is, like Luther said, like Jesus died yesterday. That the cross is so real. We just tasted that spoonful of honey. It's so powerful. Our, the rawness of our sins is so clear that to us, our visceral experiences, like Jesus just died. Right? I'm on the road to a mouse and I'm walking, and this stranger comes and he just explained to me what happened this past weekend. And my heart's burning within me because. It is so real to me and real to you through the Holy Spirit. This is the normal experience. I, you know, my, 
my wife had this experience uh, about, about six months ago. She was talking to a lady from another church that we've known for many years. And uh, you guys think I'm passionate. My wife is more passionate. You know, I'm competitive. She's comp- played ping pong with her, and <laughs> she gets fiery. I mean, she's... She loves the scripture. She loves theology. I mean, she actually attempted to read Stephen Charnock's Existence and Attributes of God. This like thousand page tome written in old English in like 0.6 font, right? <laughs> I looked at that book. I put it in my library. I didn't even dare to attempt it because I know, right? It just, I, I want the cliff, cliff notes, right? I'm not going to read. She actually attempted to read that. Well, she was sharing with this lady and she was saying how she's, she's come to know and experience and understand her sin and righteousness, about double imputation, and certain what's going on about uh, separate uses of peccator, how we are at the same time justified and sinful, and how full adoption is sons, and how there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and how she's experienced spiritual freedom, and how we're, sa- we're not just justified through faith alone, we're sanctified through faith alone, and how we're pleased, we please, his, please God through faith alone. She was going on and off for like 30 minutes, just sharing her heart, and then she stopped, and the response was, Seren, didn't you know these things when you became a Christian? Right? So she was kind of wondering, were you, were you not a Christian all this time? What do you mean you just discovered these truths? Didn't you discover, know these truths when you were first saved? Well, yes, she did. And I did, and you did. But for us, it's like hearing it for the very first time. Like Jesus died yesterday. And that is what Paul is praying for. He doesn't want this dead orthodoxy, this creedal religion, Christianity as a formal religion, where we have this statement of faith and we have a list of do's and don'ts and we live in this religious paradigm. Christianity is truth on fire to the Holy Spirit. This is, Christianity is to be experienced through the Holy Spirit. Where it is more real to us today than it was yesterday. And tomorrow it will be more real to us than it is today. That is what Paul is praying for in verse 14. Verse 15 is an aside, it's a parenthetical statement. Talking to believers, he wants to make sure that they know he's praying for Jews and Gentiles, for from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. There is a lot of confusion about this verse. The Greek word every is pasa. The better translation is whole, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. He's talking about the household of God, the family of God. He just talked about in Ephesians 1, how Jews and Gentiles have been united into one family. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. Doesn't matter your race. Doesn't matter your background. Now we have this new covenant community and we are church and we are one family by the blood of Christ and we have one father and he is our father and we are praying to him. There is no second class citizens. There is no second class family members. We're all part of one family and this promise is for everyone. And starting in verse 16, Paul gives four purposes for his prayer. Four purposes. Now there are, I talked about this clause when I was going to John 17 and I confused a lot of people. In the Greek, there is 
um, I'm not even going to say that. Okay, forget the Greek. Uh, just, okay, there's a word called henna, right? There's a word called hodi or hadi, right? Hadi is easier to remember, right? Hadi is best translated which, right? I am praying, this is my prayer, which is that you would, you know, do well with your life, right? That's which. Hina is in order that. It's a purpose clause. Anytime you find in the Greek, you want to translate it so that, or in order to it, or in order that. It shows the purpose behind the statement, or purpose of the statement. In this passage in the Greek, you'll find three hinas that shows us that there are, these are Paul's purposes for his prayer. And because the conjunction and, we find four purposes in Paul's prayer in this passage. First one is found in verse 16. In order that, according to the riches of his glory, you may be strengthened with power through his spirit. Verse, Verse 16. In your inner being. He prays for our inner being to be strengthened not out of the riches of God's glory, but according to his riches. According to his riches. So God is infinitely rich in his glory. Therefore, according to his limitless glory, Paul is praying that God might strengthen us to be strengthened in the inner man. So again, God is, Paul is concerned with the inner man. He prays that we would be strengthened. And that's passive uh, indicative, right? It is to be receiver, to be strengthened. It is not we will be strong in the inner man, but that God, through His Holy Spirit, in our being, that we will be strengthened by God. Well, shared a few weeks ago how you know my greatest blind spot is um, I think I'm strong. I think um, I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm weak spiritually. Therefore, I'm prone to be self-reliant, self-dependent, and self-confident. And because of that, my life is dominated by a Martha-like, frenetic uh, existence. In Luke 10, Martha and Mary. There is Mary sitting at the feet of Christ. And she is sitting there because she needs the words of Christ. She loves Christ. She wants to hear him. She wants to receive grace. Martha in her pride, she is working feverishly, frenetically working, full of anxiety, frustration, anger, going from one task to another. And Christ esteems Mary and that way rebukes Martha. You know, the way this uh, pride, this um, self-reliance uh, is, is seen in one's life is, uh, is, is this kind of restlessness that is on steroids in, in this 21st century world that we live in, especially in our church. We are, we are all so type A personalities. There's few of you. Man, you love Christ. You sit at his feet. You desire to be alone. You, desire, you don't want distractions. You don't want media. You don't want craziness. You, you want your heart to be calm so that you would commune with Jesus. 
For many of us, we're just going from one thing to another because it gives us a high, it gives us a boost of, of adrenaline, accomplishing tasks, getting things done, right? sending emails, finishing projects. We're addicted to that high, so we go from one thing to another, and due to this restlessness, our lives are, are filled with, with anxiety and frustration and, and, and activity, and it's devoid of being strengthened in the inner man. The Holy Spirit. Let me let me read to you. Um, I'm kind of being semi being discipled by a pastor named Jack Miller, and um, the heart of a servant leader. It's amazing. Okay, it's been a long Sunday, but why stop now? Uh, <laughs> this pastor, professor of Westminster, founder of World Harvest Mission, wrote these letters to fellow pastors and ministers, members of his church. And he had a daughter who, went, who strayed away from Christ and really lived a sinful life. And he's praying for her. His wife is praying for her. Well, he dies and his daughter, and he always wanted these letters to be public because he thought it would be a means of grace to, to people. She edits this book. She comes back and compiles these letters. She publishes them. Publishes them. I've been reading them for the past several months. And... I mean, I'm a, I have a man crush on this guy, right? <laughs> I want, I mean, I, I, I'm like, it's like Matt Barnes and Kobe Bryant, their boyfriend-girlfriend kind of thing, right? <laughs> I don't know if you guys are done or not. Uh, I mean, I, I'm just so blessed by what he's writing, what he's saying. And he writes to a, one of his uh, fellow leader, and let me just read to you what he wrote. He's burdened in his heart, and he says... It has to do with the restlessness of this generation. People everywhere seem to be trying to build a permanent home in this world and to do it as fast as they can. Incredible restlessness is everywhere. These are rough times in which to do evangelism and pastoral work because people are madly pursuing their secular illusions. I hope I am wrong, but it seems this restlessness is reflected in our own lives within the church. God, I believe, has really hit me over the head to get me to repent of it. And I do not think I can yet say the battle is won. Pray for me that my heart will repent more deeply of this great evil. But the battle is everywhere. When I arrived in Kenya, I was amazed to find that Pastor John, a Kenyan pastor, was about the busiest pastor I have seen in a long time. To the praise of God's grace, he has committed himself to slow down. The pastors in Switzerland were in the same rat race. Amazing. I entreated them to reconsider. Restlessness in the world and everlasting stirring in the church members and leaders, my gut feeling is that much of this activity is based upon the unconscious notion that this world is a permanent place, an arena where we can make our home, build our reputations, get ahead in our ambitions, secure the right education, establish the right programs, etc. Well, I want to raise this question, are we looking for demonization of the modern world in the wrong places? Is this restlessness fleshly and also demonic in its power over hearts in our time? I suspect that this restlessness has roots in hell. Consider its subtlety. Who can re repent when he is going at warp speed? 
And how can you repent if you do not have the time to see where you are going? What is keeping you from being strengthened in the inner man through the Holy Spirit? I would say one enemy is your your busyness, is your restlessness, your frenzy going from one thing to another and refusing to pause. Refusing to say no to to this world and and even the urgent things of life because you're so desperately weak in the inner man that you first need to sit at the feet of Christ and be strengthened by Him. Receive grace from Him. That is Paul's first prayer. Second prayer is that, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Where there is cardia in your hearts. The heart is the, the control center of our the entire personality. It is the core of the inner man. A person's heart is where you find the things you most hope for. Things you base your happiness on. Things you base your joy on. It is what affects everything. These, in your heart, you will find your foundational commitments. It's in your heart where you find what thoughts make sense to you, what feelings move you, what actions you will take. Thoughts, emotions, motivations will all reside in the heart. Paul is praying that Jesus will dwell there. Kata oikos. Right? Kata is toward, it's intensive. Oikos is home, it's home. It's it's dwelling place. And there's an intensive force here. So for many of us, Jesus is a visitor. He's our neighbor. He comes to our hearts on Sundays. He comes to our hearts on Wednesday night or Thursday night. He comes to us once in a while. Most of the time, what dwells in our hearts is our, our fears, our anxieties, our frustrations, our judgmentalism, our pride, our ego, our self. That's what dwells in our hearts, and Jesus is the neighbor that visits once in a while. What Paul is praying for is that through faith, Christ would make his home in our hearts. Christ would be here constantly, and we would experience it, and he'll be a, he'll be a real person to us. He'll be a, a reality to us. He would not just be a, a, a doctrinal statement. Or he would not be, what would Jesus do? An example for us to follow. No, he'll be a living person, a truth that resides, dwells in our hearts. Tim Keller said this. I'm going to repeat it a couple times so that, so that you get it. He repeated it a couple times, and I needed to hear it a couple times. He said, this is an inward experience through which Christ becomes as real to you as any other person, if not more so, an inward experience where Christ becomes as real to you as any other human being in your life, if not more so, where His love and approval, therefore, is more real, more affecting, more sweet, more important than anyone else. So His love and approval is more important than your parents' approval. His love is more important than your children's love toward you. 
His love and approval is more important than your professional acclaim, your financial status, your professional achievement. All those things have become relativized. They become secondary, tertiary. They become on the margins. They're the appendix, right? The main thing is Jesus. He has become the most important person and your life is oriented around Him. Your ideals, your values, your thoughts, your affections, your, your, your decisions. Everything is oriented because He is the most important person that dwells in your heart and He is a reality and therefore you are less insecure when your profession, professional achievement is taken away from you, when, when your bank account dwindles, when relationships go sour. When you're losing these secondary things in this world, you're less anxious because Jesus is there and He's dwelling in you. This is absolutely critical. This is so important. This will change your life like nothing else. And I heard from the Czech team, I didn't get a chance to hear as much as I want to about their ministry. And I asked Eugene, Eugene, what was the highlight for you this 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 uh, mission trip? And Eugene said, "Man, like, you know, Gina gave a testimony at the camp, and she was so vulnerable. She was so raw, and she was so honest. It affected everyone, even non-believers. And Eugene, how long have you known Gina? Like, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years? How old are you? Right? I mean, like, <laughs> 20 plus years." And Eugene said, I heard, I, I found out things about Gina I never knew. Now, how was she able to, before strangers, share the most difficult things of her life and be so vulnerable? Because I believe Jesus is there in her heart. And Jesus loves her. Jesus accepts her. So who cares what people think? Insecurity is, is driven away. Because she's accepted by Jesus. And if, she, if her honesty can advance the cause of Christ, she's there. This is how Jesus dwelling in our hearts changes us, changes our decisions, changes our behavior. This is why Paul is praying this for Christians. Thirdly, I mean, I just, I, I don't have the ability to explain verse 18 and 19a. I am, I am at a loss here, so that you may have strength, dunamis, to comprehend. And this word comprehend is kata lambano. It is again kata toward, it's intensive. Lambano is to seize, it's to overtake someone, it's to run after someone, chase him, wrestle him to the ground, and rob him. It's that idea, that aggressive idea to, to take hold of, lay hold of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul is praying, oh, that you would have strength. You would receive strength. You would receive strength. To, because this is so difficult for us to chase after this truth of Christ's love for us that is beyond knowledge, that we can't grasp this. We can't, cop, we can't catalambano this through study, through just memor, memorization, through meditation. It has to be a, a, a full-on, heart engagement towards the doctrine of the scriptures where we lay hold of it with our souls. That is Paul's prayer for us. That we would know and experience and believe the love of Christ which is beyond comprehension, beyond knowledge. Why? Because, I mean, 
John Owen said this, and I, I quoted this months ago. John Owen, I mean, Puritan pastor, in his book, Communion with God, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is not to believe that He loves you. Right? The greatest disservice, the greatest sorrow you can lay on our Father, the greatest unkindness you can show to Him is not to believe that He loves you. This is the most difficult thing in the Christian life to lay hold of and believe and experience Christ's love for us. Isaiah 49.15 It says, uh, Can a woman forget her nursing child? Is that possible? For a mom who has nursed a baby for a year and forget this child? That she would have no compassion on the child of her womb. But God says, even these may forget. Yes, moms may forget. But God says, yet I will not forget you. My love is greater. My love for you is greater than your mother's love who nursed you. My love for you is infinitely greater. Where God loves me and demonstrates his love for me, and love for you on the cross, Given you, given us grace upon grace, that we deserve hell and for eternity. He has adopted us as his, as his sons, and when we call him Abba Father, and he has clothed his garments of righteousness. And every day of our lives, he says, "Well done, my faithful servant. You are my son, whom I am well pleased." That is why Paul says in verse 18, what is the breadth, length, height, and depth? And that reminds us of Romans 8. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Neither death, nor life, angels, nor rulers, present, things to come, or powers, height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what we are to lay hold of. If you think you're get it, you get it, you don't get it. If you think, oh, I, I, know, I know God's love. I know Jesus loves me. I learned that at VBS, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. If you think you know God's love through Christ, you don't know God's love. If you say, you know, I, I, I see the, the absence of God means that the realization of the absence of God means God is present. If you long for Him, if you hunger for Him, if you admit, I do not know this love. This love doesn't affect me as it ought. It doesn't identify me. It's not present, ruling over me. It's not melting my heart as should. My prayer life, or the lack of it, is a clear demonstration of that. That is the first sign that you are taking the steps to, 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 to lay hold of, to seize, overtake this truth about God's love through Christ Jesus. And the final one is uh, verse 19. So that you may be filled with the fullness of God. You may be filled with the fullness of God. Um, 
that you be like God. Right? You'd be like God. You would be holy like God. And you would be gracious and loving like God. You would be imitators of the Father. Verse 19 is proof that it was not just an emotional experience. If you have this you know, experience and you get emotional and you felt things and yet your life is, is, is void of holiness, righteousness, repentance, obedience and love and mercy and grace, then it was all disingenuous. It was all just pretense. It was all, no matter how sincere you were, you were sincerely repenting in the wrong direction. You were going the wrong direction. It was all an act. all pretension. But in verse 19, is a reality where you are like God. The presence of God is with you and is seen by your life. Then you know that this is true. Paul points our direction to the close. This verse is so thing out of context so so often. It's in the context of prayer. Context of prayer for the inner man. He's not praying for our wallets. He's not praying for our physical health. He's not promising a prayer of Jabez here. Right? He's praying for the inner man. And accordingly in this context, verse 20 and 21, now to him was able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. Pointing our hearts towards Christ, he is our hope. He is our confidence in our prayers for ourselves and for one another. He will do it. He's able to do it. He promised to do it, and he will do it. And so we hold him to his promise, and we wait and believe that he will. Four quick closing thoughts. When is the last time you have ceased from your restlessness, got on your knees, and prayed for the true man, your, your inner man, the true person, prayed for your heart and prayed for your soul, that you might receive strength through the Holy Spirit, so that Christ may dwell in your heart, that Christ might be a real person to you, who means more to you than anything else in this world. When's the last time you pause to seize and wrestle and understand, not taking from God, taking from truth, taking from the scriptures to comprehend and to make your own love of Christ, that is in, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. When is the last time you ask God that you be filled with God, filled with the Spirit? Would you dare do that this week? Would you dare do that? Take a step and say, God, I'm going to lay hold of you. I'm going to ask of you who is far more abundantly able to do all that we ask or think. I'm going to ask you, God, to do this in my life. And may your will be done in my life. May you change the inner man. May your will be done. Secondly, notice that phrase, with all the saints all the saints. This is not an individual uh, pursuit. It's a community pursuit. 
and I can't tell you how I have benefited from gospel fellowship. I all that I experienced the love of Christ not in my closet like Jesus praying by myself. I experienced God as I talk to my wife about the gospel. And I hear her and her experience and her insights into scripture. As I fellowship with so many of you, even at VBS, while the kids are running around all over us, take a moment out, talk with Sarah, take a moment out, talk to Hyun. We're talking about the gospel and we're learning and discovering about our depravity and God's grace and God's holiness. And that way, we're discovering love of Christ. It is with all the saints we are to do this. Please do away with just frivolous talk about the weather, right? about sports, about movies and shows. Right? They have their place, time and place. But pray that you would, with all the saints, grow in this. And finally, it is through faith in Christ. Maybe trust the Lord. Fix our eyes upon God that he will do this. It is not through our efforts that will be done that he will do this. Let's stand and close our time in a word of prayer. And we'll close our service. I'll just give you a minute just to pray in response to the word of God, in response to Paul's recorded prayer here and the Spirit apply these truths to your hearts and you lay hold of it. to us by grace this faith is not our work it is a gift for which we are thankful and for through this faith we see the cross of Christ and because of it in our hearts believe and we experience that he has he just died for our sins and we were just saved our eyes have just been opened our ears I've heard the gospel for the very first time and our hearts have been melted and broken by your love and grace for the very first time. So God, we repent. We repent of our laxness in our devotion to you. We repent of the cavalier and callous way we live our Christian lives and how fleshly we are in the area of prayer and study of your word. We repent of our worldliness and our, and our friendship with this world and love of this world and repent of our false righteousness and, and, and be clothing ourselves with our external deeds rather than the garb of Christ. We repent of these things. Open shame belongs to us. We ask for your forgiveness. But Lord, we're able to repent openly and honestly with complete candor because the gospel at the same time tells us that you absolutely love and approve and accept us 
to the work on the cross through Jesus Christ. Lord, that you, Lord, know all of our sins. You know our ways full well. And yet, Lord, you bid us to come. You bid us to come and take off our burdensome yoke and take upon your yoke, which is light and easy. And because you are gentle in heart, we'll find rest for our souls. Lord, we run to you. Lord, make, these, these, make this our prayer. Make this our constant prayer in our lives and in our church and for Christians all over the world that you might be a living reality to us, dwelling in our hearts. That you might make us more like you. We thank you, Jesus. We love you. Thank you for this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, everyone.